The House and Senate will both return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, they came back to work Tuesday and took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed three more bills under suspension. Then the House took up the rule to govern floor consideration of H.R. 7, the Paycheck Fairness Act, and H.R. 1195, the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Service Workers Act. On Thursday, the House took up and passed another two bills under suspension. Then the House took up H.R. 7, the Paycheck Fairness Act, and passed it by a vote of 217 to 210. Then the House took up and passed eight more bills under suspension. On Friday, the House took up and passed H.R. 1195, the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Service Workers Act, by a vote of 254 to 166. Then the House took up and passed one more bill under suspension, and then they were done. This week in the House, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 21 bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the House is scheduled to take up two more bills under suspension. In addition, the House will consider H.R. 1333, the No Ban Act, and H.R. 1573, the Access to Counsel Act of 2021. H.R. 1333 restricts the president's authority to suspend or restrict entry of certain foreign nationals on the basis that their entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States for a variety of threats, including U.S. national security, financial markets, and even public health. H.R. 1573 requires that aliens attempting to enter the United States through a port of entry be offered a right to consult with an attorney or other interested party if the alien is referred to a secondary inspection. On Thursday, the House will take up H.R. 51, the Washington, D.C. Admission Act. That's the bill that would unconstitutionally make the District of Columbia the 51st state. And then they'll be done. Last week in the Senate, the Senate returned to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Polly Ellen Trottenberg to serve as Deputy Secretary of Transportation. On Tuesday, the Senate voted by 82 to 15 to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Wendy Ruth Sherman to serve as Deputy Secretary of State. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Gary Gensler to be a member of the Securities and Exchange Commission for the remainder of the term expiring June 5, 2021. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm Gary Gensler to serve as a member of the Securities and Exchange Commission for the remainder of the term expiring June 5, 2021. The vote to confirm was 53 to 46. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Brenda Mallory to be a member of the Council on Environmental Quality. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to S-937, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act introduced by Hawaii Democrat Senator Maisie Hirono. On Thursday, the Senate voted by 49 to 34 to discharge the nomination of Vanita Gupta from the Judiciary Committee. Penny Beth published an op-ed opposing the Gupta nomination last week, and you can find it in the suggested reading. This week in the Senate, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Lisa Monaco to serve as Deputy Attorney General. Then, based on the Majority Leader's filings, I anticipate the Senate will move to consider the nomination of Gary Gensler to be a member of the Securities and Exchange Commission for a term expiring June 5, 2026. I also anticipate that the Senate will resume and finish its consideration of S-937, the COVID-19 hate crimes bill. 
And though he has not filed cloture on it, Majority Leader Schumer may bring up the nomination of Vanita Gupta to serve as Associate Attorney General. Now to Afghanistan withdrawal. On Wednesday of last week, President Biden announced his determination to withdraw the remaining 2,500 or so U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attacks of 2001. That actually extends by four months the May 1 withdrawal deadline negotiated with the Taliban last year. A person the Washington Post described as, quote, familiar with the closed door deliberations, unquote, speaking on background, said, quote, this is not conditions based. The president has judged that a conditions based approach is a recipe for staying in Afghanistan forever. He has reached the conclusion that the United States will complete its drawdown and will remove its forces from Afghanistan before September 11th, end quote. This person continued, quote, the reality is that the United States has big strategic interests in the world, like nonproliferation, like an increasingly aggressive and assertive Russia, like North Korea and Iran, whose nuclear programs pose a threat to the United States, like China. Afghanistan just does not rise to the level of those other threats at this point, end quote. Reaction on Capitol Hill was mixed and not divided strictly by party lines. Most Republicans criticized the decision. Senate Minority Leader McConnell said, quote, precipitously withdrawing U.S. forces from Afghanistan is a grave mistake. It is a retreat in the face of the enemy. Foreign terrorists will not leave the United States alone simply because our politicians have grown tired of taking the fight to them, end quote. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham said, it is insane to withdraw at this time, given the conditions that exist on the ground in Afghanistan. A full withdrawal from Afghanistan is dumber than dirt and devilishly dangerous. New Hampshire Democrat Senator Gene Shaheen tweeted, quote, I'm very disappointed in POTUS's decision to set a September deadline to walk away from Afghanistan. The U.S. has sacrificed too much to bring stability to Afghanistan to leave without verifiable assurances of a secure future, end quote. Other senior Democrats are holding their fire for now. Now to earmarks. Senate Republicans will decide on Wednesday whether or not to drop their opposition to earmarks or let their own internal conference rules continue the prohibition. Less than two years ago, Senate Republicans voted by 28 to 12 to impose on themselves a permanent ban on what they called congressionally directed spending. Conference rules now say, quote, it is the policy of the Republican conference that no member shall request a congressionally directed spending item, limited tax benefit or limited tariff benefit in bills that come before the Senate. But the rules also say, quote, no action by the conference upon any matter pending or to be proposed in the Senate shall be binding in any way on members in casting their votes thereon, end quote. In other words, it's not really a rule so much as it is a strong suggestion. Now to redistricting, an update on state-level efforts to redistrict without the right data. As you'll recall from earlier discussions, the Census Bureau has announced it will be several months late in delivering to the states the data they need to properly redraw congressional and state legislative district boundaries. That's a problem for many states because many states have deadlines set by statute on when new maps have to be in place. In, in Illinois, for instance, the state law sets a deadline of June 30 of this year to redraw the state's electoral boundaries.
If the state legislature does not accomplish the task by then, under state law, the legislature cedes that function to a bipartisan commission. Needless to say, Illinois state legislators, the vast majority of whom are Democrats, do not want to give up the power to redraw their own district lines. So what are they going to do? Rather than wait for the proper data, they're going to use different data. They're going to combine the 2010 census data with data from the American Community Survey data from 2019. Needless to say, this could open up the new maps to legal challenge. But when did that ever stop an Illinois Democrat? Stay tuned. I'm keeping my eye on this issue. More on court packing. On Thursday, House and Senate Democrats, led by House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler and Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, introduced legislation to expand the number of Supreme Court justices from 9 to 13 in an effort to create what they call balance. Of course, even that is a lie. If they wanted balance on a court that's now divided 6 to 3, they'd be adding three new justices, not four. It's not balance they seek, but control via a majority. Now, we all know the last time a Democrat president tried to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court, that is when Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried it in 1937, it failed in spectacular fashion despite overwhelming Democrat majorities in both chambers of Congress. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee then opposed the bill outright and refused to consider it in his committee. Consequently, Roosevelt had to have it introduced and considered first in the Senate, contrary to longstanding practice. And when the Senate finally voted on the legislation after months of hearings and open-ended debates, the Senate voted by 70 to 20 to send the bill back to committee where the court packing language was stripped from the bill by explicit instruction. But what we don't really focus on is the aftermath of the fight over the court. In the short to medium term, the battle sapped Roosevelt's political strength. In the 1938 midterm elections, Democrats lost eight seats in the Senate and 81 seats in the House. But over the longer term, Roosevelt's power over the Supreme Court grew and grew. Why? It had nothing to do with Roosevelt and everything to do with the members of the Supreme Court. One of them stepped down in 1937. By 1941, two had died and four more had retired, leaving just two of the nine Roosevelt had faced off against from 1933 to 1937. By the time Roosevelt died in 1945, he had appointed eight of the nine sitting justices imprinting his stamp on the court far more deeply than if his court packing scheme had been enacted. Now to DC statehood. On Thursday, the House will vote on HR 51, the Washington DC Admission Act to make the District of Columbia the 51st state. If the law were somehow to pass the Congress, that is not just the House, but the Senate too, and be signed into law, most of the territory of what is now known as the District of Columbia would be known as the state of Washington, Douglas Commonwealth. According to the summary of the bill, quote, the Commonwealth, one, shall consist of all district territory with specified exclusions for federal buildings and monuments, including the principal federal monuments, the White House, the Capitol building, the U.S. Supreme Court building, and the federal executive, legislative, and judicial office buildings located adjacent to the mall and the Capitol building, and two, may not impose taxes on federal property except as Congress permits. District territory excluded from the Commonwealth shall be known as the capital and shall be the seat of the federal government. The bill maintains the federal government's authority over military lands and specified other property, end quote. 
The problem with the bill, of course, is that it's just that, a bill, and not a constitutional amendment. Most scholars who have studied the issue have taken the position that because the District of Columbia is a creation of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, it would require an amendment to the Constitution to make it a state. And, of course, the second problem the bill has is that there are only 50 Democrats in the Senate and not 60 or more. I'd bet my very last dollar that there's no way in the world at least 10 Senate Republicans would agree to vote on this bill. So it may well pass the House. In fact, I imagine it will but it will almost certainly die in the Senate. Interestingly, the last proposed amendment to the Constitution that actually passed both houses and was sent to the states for ratification was the District of Columbia Voting Rights Amendment, which came at the problem from a different angle. Rather than attempt to make the District of Columbia the 51st state, the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment would have given D.C. full representation in the U.S. Congress with two senators and an appropriate number of representatives based on population full representation in the Electoral College, and full participation in the process by which the Constitution is amended. It would also have repealed the 23rd Amendment, which gave the district the same number of votes in the Electoral College as the least populous state, but granted the district no role in contingent elections. That constitutional amendment passed the House on March 2, 1978. It passed the Senate on August 22, 1978 and was sent to the states for ratification with a seven-year ratification deadline written into the text. Only 16 states ratified the amendment before the seven-year time limit had passed. The amendment died and has never been heard from again. Finally, to reparations. Late Wednesday night of last week, the House Judiciary Committee took up and passed H.R. 40, a bill to establish a commission to study and develop reparations proposals for African Americans. According to The Hill, this marks the first time that Congress has ever voted on the concept. In passing the bill out of committee, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler has teed up the bill for a floor vote whenever the House Democrat leadership decides the time is right. The bill is designated H.R. 40 in honor of what its advocates call the unfulfilled promise that freed slaves would receive 40 acres and a mule from the U.S. government after the Civil War. A version of the legislation has been introduced in every Congress since 1989. From 1989 until his retirement in 2017, the late John Conyers introduced the legislation. Sheila Jackson Lee took over the duty after Conyers retired. As of Friday, there are 182 co-sponsors of this legislation. I'm not even sure it could command a majority on the House floor. This is the kind of legislation moderate Democrats would be scared to vote for given the upcoming midterm elections. Plus, it's virtually an impossibility that this bill could make it through a filibuster in the Senate, given that the structure of the commission indicates a very great likelihood that there will not be a single Republican commission member. And Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Hoyer are aware of that. So, if the bill is likely to come to a full and screeching halt in the Senate, even if it does pass the House, why make your vulnerable members take a tough vote? And that's why Hoyer called for President Biden to take the burden off the Congress by creating such a commission by executive order, just as he last week created a commission to study the idea of court packing. We'll see if Biden takes him up on the idea to save those vulnerable House Democrats from having to take a tough vote. And that's our Washington Report for this week.